So I've got Dr. Daryl Bach. I'm going to interview him. You're going to be stunned over this gentleman in so many positive ways. I know you could be stunned in a negative way as well. Uh, I want to thank Robert for bringing this morning's Peanuts cartoon to us, comic strip. Uh, it uh, uh, denotes a, a reference to something that uh, was said last night by Dr. Bach in his library lecture. But whether you were there last night or not, and yes, if you were there, I brought the Q&A questions that we didn't have time to cover, so I'm going to try to cover your questions. But I'm excited. I'm going to give the introduction to Dr. Bach while I interview him up here. So right now, I just ask you, would you join me in saying welcome to Dr. Daryl Bach? Thank you, Mark. Please have a seat. And uh, yeah, Brent, Brent uh, stole my thunder. It was worth stealing the thunder because I had not thought of that pun. And it was very <laughs> clever and well worth saying. But I will say this. This two-volume mass here is just on the Gospel of Luke. I mean, this is like, this weighs... It doubles as aerobics exercise. Yeah, yeah, look, you can use it for curls. Okay, one in each hand. I'm not saying that these are dumb bells, but uh, this, is, uh, this is amazing. And the reason I brought it was not just to show everybody, but to get you to sign it. Uh, no, I'm joking. He's already signed. Anyway, will you understand that we have a top-notch biblical scholar here today and we will talk Bible with him, but I want to divide this time up into a couple of different areas. And the first area I want to talk to him about is just personal stuff. And each one of you come in here with your own personal life. We have people in this class who are um, Christians of all denominations. Uh, uh, we have, I know, Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, Church of Christ, Catholic, uh, uh we have a Lutheran at least. I got an email from someone asking me, what do you think about this Lutheran stuff? Uh, I'm just great friends who are Lutherans. We've got um, uh, a number of others. We also have some Jewish people who come to this class routinely. Jews who are believers in Jesus, Yeshua as Messiah, and Jews that are not uh, 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 yet of that persuasion. We have, um, we have some unbelievers who come to this class. People who, who right now are just looking for faith and don't have faith in anything. Regardless of where you fit onto that panorama, I'm glad you're here this morning. And I'm excited to get to engage with Dr. Daryl Bach because he's got a lot to say in all of the areas that we might have interest in. And I think this will be interesting to everybody. So we're going to start by getting to know you a little bit. Would you please tell them a little bit about who you are? Well, um, where do you start? Uh, Why don't you start with your family? Okay. Um, I am married for almost 48 years, be 48 years in December. I often get introduced as having been married for around 40 years, and I tell people I want credit for every year I've been married. So, uh, um, so it'll be 48 years? 48 years And in your December. wife's name is? Is Sally. Do you like her? Um yeah, we still get along most of the time. Fantastic. So, uh, you know, th there are those moments when you put out the press release that says the two parties have met and had constructive conversation. But, uh, uh, but um, for the most part, no, Sally's wonderful. She's been a wonderful gift in my life. Well, I'm always reminded of the old uh, Jimmy Stewart movie, Shenandoah, this, where the, you know, Jimmy Stewart's this, this Virginian farmer and, and, He's got daughters, and this young man, neighborhood boy, comes in, and he's going to ask Jimmy Stewart for the hand in marriage of, of one of his daughters. And he's all nervous because Jimmy Stewart's this rough, mean old farmer. And Jimmy Stewart says to him, he says, well, do you like her? <laughs> and he says, oh, sir, I love your daughter. I've loved her since fifth grade. You know, I've always loved her. 
I didn't ask if you love her. I said, do you like her? I loved her mother for five years before I learned to like her. <laughs> so so yeah. I'm always interested to ask, exactly. do you like her? Yeah, most of the time, yes. Okay. <laughs> and you've got children and grandchildren. I've got three children scattered across the globe and five grandchildren scattered across the globe as well. Fantastic. And you have lived in a number of different places yourself. Let's get into your life. Where were you born and raised? Born in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, because my dad was in the oil business. And then we ended up parking here in Houston when I was about five years old. And so most of my conscious life was spent in Houston. So I refer to myself as a Houstonian in exile living in Dallas. Uh, but you're an Astros fan. I'm, I'm all things Houston. I mean, just uh, it, there is, you know, uh, this week uh, Houston had a great week up at up at the baseball park there in Dallas in the Arlington area, and half the stadium was full of Houston fans. So I get the way uh, Dallas operates. Dallas would be nothing without the Houstonians who live there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was uh, kind of the reverse of you. I was born in Dallas. Mm-hmm. But I got to Houston as quick as I could. There you go. And um, uh, that's great. Now, you grew up in a home in Houston. Your dad's in the oil business. Uh, did you did you grow up in a Christian home? No. I mean, we went to church. We went to a what would be a theologically moderate church, a congregational church, while I was growing up. But my mom got cancer when I was eight years old and then went through, in a period of six years, a period of eight years went through, uh, well, no, it was six years, went through a series of operations where she was in and out of the hospital. That totally disrupted our church attendance. And uh, um, so I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I, I, I probably, there probably was the gospel preached there, but I was so young I didn't hear it. Okay. And, and then something profound happened to you when you were 13. Yeah, I, I found out that I was Jewish on both sides of my family. And how do you just sort of stumble into that when you're 13? That's a great question. Um, I, asked my, I asked my family that when I found out. Uh, uh, what happened was my parents had told my grandparents right before I was born in Calgary that they were leaving Judaism. And uh, I actually don't know the reason why. No one knows the reason why. Even my aunt, who knows everything about the family, didn't know the reason why. So I'll never discover it till I get to heaven. Anyway, um, that meant that the fam- that my family became isolated from all my mom and dad's siblings because they isolated our family. And then one day, my the younger brother of my dad decided he didn't want to do this anymore. And he shows up with three of his sons who were younger than I was. And they had come to see the All-Star game at the Astrodome. And we're gathered around dinner, and we're all getting introduced to one another, and they're talking about going to synagogue. Now, I wasn't very theologically sophisticated at the time, but I did know that a synagogue was not a church. And so I'm sitting here thinking, okay, this is Dad's brother. His kiddos are going, and they attend a synagogue. What in the world does that mean? I still to this day don't remember whether I asked my dad or my brother, my two sources of all important information in my life at that time, uh, uh, what was going on. But then they told me that that on both sides of my family uh, were Jewish. Wow. How did you then, coming out of this background, come to faith in Jesus as uh, Uh, Lord? This is a a great story. Um, I did it through the persistent, uh, persistent efforts of many Christians and especially Southern Baptists. Um, uh, when I was uh, going in my freshman year, one of my closest friends in the world, uh, who now is dean of faculty at um, Talbot Seminary, Scott Ray, uh, went to Young Life Camp, came to the Lord, and he came back and he wanted to share with his friends because they told him, you know, share Christ with your friends. And he had a three-point message, okay, you know. And his message was, you need Jesus, you need Jesus, you need Jesus. And those were the three points, okay. (laughs) And I'm going, you need help. (laughs) I had no idea. I had no idea what he was talking about and what, you know, uh, why he was on to this and that kind of, I just thought he was crazy. But we 
we still hung out together. And he was one of several people over a period of about five or six years who shared with me, including a college roommate I had at SMU my first year. Uh, I spent my first year at SMU in the remaining three years at the University of Texas in, in investing in the commitment I had to my wife-to-be to be sure that I didn't lose her. And so, because um, I liked her at Sally's the time. a longhorn? Sally's a longhorn, yeah. Oh, bless her heart. Her grandfather... Her, this is how you grew to love the unloved. This is how I look, grew to love the other. Exactly okay, right. The other. Okay. So now Sally's <laughs> grandfather was president of the University of Texas. So her dad said, her dad said, you can go anywhere, but the only place I'm paying for is the University of Texas. And I didn't have the pull yet in the family to be able to convince her to come to SMU, although I did try. Okay, that was an argument I lost. But I've won every argument with her family since. That's okay. Good. Because once I married her, okay, it was victory. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, uh, so where was I? Oh, I was at, uh, so my roommate, college roommate at SMU lived out his Christian life, basically. And that was kind of the capper. So when I came to the Lord, it was after a five, six year period of pretty persistent testimony, variety of people. And I hit the ground running because I it was by the time the Lord got me, it was such a conscious decision that had been thought through. And so I hit the ground running and we had a Bible study in my apartment my sophomore year at Texas that my roommate at the time and I hosted. We start off with six people my sophomore year. By the time my senior year came around, we had people in a four bedroom apartment in every room. They couldn't even see um, the teaching that was going on, the teacher that was going on, and uh, and we were we were it was all college, UT college students, so it was pretty clear what I should be doing, and uh, so I went to seminary at Dallas, and then you said I lived overseas, did my doctoral work at Aberdeen in Scotland under Howard Marshall, who's probably the premier evangelical British New Testament scholar at the time, came back immediately to teach at Dallas. I've been at <laughs> Dallas for 42 years. Uh, where I serve now as Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies and Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center. Some of you will know the name Howard Hendricks. And, uh, and his, his son works with me. We share the role at, at the center. And then, uh, and then I spent four single years in, in Germany at Tübingen uh, uh, with the Humboldt Scholarship, which debuted as a lifetime relationship with the scholar, and my hosts there were Otto Betts and Martin Hengel. Martin Hengel was probably one of the world's New Testament and Second Temple Jewish experts at the time. And so it's a terrific uh, background that started, just to close the loop, I graduated from Kincaid here in, in Houston. And, uh, um, and that laid a wonderful academic foundation for everything that I've done in my life. Wow. So when you say you're at Dallas, you are at Dallas Theological Seminary. Correct. DTS. Yeah. And it itself is pretty stringent academically. Yes. Uh, I, I mean, it's it's not like... And we're not proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, let's, let's transition and okay. talk then about some of your um, interests within the field of academia. Okay. You know, I brought these two massive volumes of Luke. You're also uh, well known for Acts. How did you go about writing these? And were they always planned... Here, we'll do this this way. Okay. Were they always planned to be two volumes? Um, I wrote the, those books uh, spending anywhere from 90 minutes to two hours every day for 14 years working on the Gospel of Luke. Without exception. I, um, I am not a Sabbatarian. And so um, it was basically seven Didn't days Didn't take a, a Sabbath off. Didn't take he, the Sabbath He believes off. in the nine commandments. Seven, that's ahead. right. Exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. I said, Lord, if you want me to finish this in my lifetime, i got to throw in Sunday. And so... Uh, um, and just plugged away at it. I spent, there are 1,149 verses in Luke. Uh, and so my goal was to write up a verse a day until I got it done. And then I went through that manuscript four or five times before I finally released it. And uh, I tell my students that a book assignment looks like it's difficult. But if you can get 90 minutes a day to write on it and write one page a day, you have a book at the end of the year. 
and, uh, and you just have to be very disciplined about it. So I was pretty disciplined about it. When I was growing up, before I was a Christian, I thought I was going to be a sports broadcaster or a sports writer or something, something area of sports. I started off in radio, TV, and film. And I used to do Astro averages. Well, I were four Colt 45 averages and then became Astro averages every day during the baseball season with a slide rule to just pretend what it would be like to be a, in, in the sports world. And uh, that took about that amount of time every day during a baseball season. So God had built in a discipline for me that then when I came to the Lord just simply ported into the theological work that I was doing. All right, this is a, a, an application moment. Uh, so I want to yeah. digress from, from the discussion and, and ask you, we've got people of all sorts of ages. We've got people from high school to post-retirement. Um, we've, got, <laughs> we've got people of all sorts of ages. How can, if, if we want to grow in our faith and in our study of God, what word of encouragement can you give us about how God can use the various gifts, talents, experiences, and disciplines that we've already developed maybe in the business world or maybe in going to school or whatever. How can God use that at this point for anybody who's listening to this message? Well, I would just say that, um, I'd say two things that will sound contradictory. Um, The first is, be sure you get time with God uh, every day. Um, And that can be in a variety of ways. Sometimes I find myself just going to YouTube and playing... um, hymn music or praise music in the background while I'm working. Uh, uh, spend time with God. Spend time in the Word. Spend time in prayer. Spend time um, engaged in enjoying other people worshiping God. Uh, that's one thing. And then the other thing I will say will sound contradictory and a counter to advice you often get. Because you often hear about having a quiet time. And the point of a quiet time is you study the Word of God in order for God to speak to you Okay, and then whatever else you do with your preparation or your interaction with the Bible becomes something else. Here's what's the contradictory thing that I'm going to say is, I actually don't believe in the idea of a quiet time per se, because I believe any time you open up the Bible, you should allow God to speak to you. And so the danger of creating a devotional switch versus an academic switch, if I can say it that way, is at some point you'll lose control of that switch. So as you never turn off the opportunity that you have to hear from God when you're interacting with his word. And so um, if you'll do that consistently and allow that to permeate your life and listen to people who challenge you to think about what the Bible actually says versus sometimes what you hear it says, um, that will serve you well. So I'm, I'm elated that you've got a room full of people here who obviously are committed to that direction. And that's, that's, it's not a profound piece of advice. It's a simple piece of advice. It's not just a simple piece of advice, though. It's also a wonderful opportunity for me to plug where we're going next week. So <laughs> next week we start our study of Genesis in this class. And it is going to be a study that I believe will challenge you and make you think through uh, a number of different things. I think one of the most important verses to help us understand where we'll be starting, which is creation. I think one of the most important verses to help us understand that is actually found in the book of Acts, where it references Moses being brought up in Pharaoh's household, learning all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Because I think if we don't understand who God's audience would have been at Sinai speaking to Moses, we stand a huge chance we're going to misunderstand much of what God said about some very important things. So all to say, come next Sunday. Love to have you. We have donuts. Uh, All right, let's move into your message from last night and and the message we had Friday. Larry Burgess sent me... uh, an email, uh, Lori Tischler, 
uh, happy day after Lori. Uh, Lori Tischler sent me uh, or handed me a note. I got uh, uh, several other emails from people. I don't have liberty necessarily to say their name, but all of them saying they really loved the panel or they really loved your lecture last night. And so uh, uh, I want to set it up if I can. Well, you set the table for the lecture Friday. Would you like to set the table for us or would you like me to give the Reader's Digest version? Um, you know, I think I'd be interested to see what you heard because that will tell me whether I was successful in communicating. <laughs> fair. Totally fair. Uh, let me see. What was it? Uh, no. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it into Mark Lanier speak, but this is the essence of the table that was set. We live in a country that, first of all, as a democracy, is a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. And if you take that concept and you recognize that constitutionally we have the right to free speech in this country, we can say what we want to say within certain limits of libel and slander and you don't yell fire in the middle of a theater, you know, when there's no fire. There are some, some boundaries around that. But generally, free speech. And then I'm integrating your Friday and Saturday. Uh-huh. You add the technology changes that have happened just in our lifetime where now you have immediate access to any event or anything that's happening around the globe as opposed to having to wait a day, a week. I mean, I can remember when I was in high school, we'd get Time magazine so that we could read what happened over the week. And it was a weekly magazine. Well, it's gonzo. <laughs> I mean, who's going to subscribe to a weekly magazine to tell you about the events of last week? We get it instantaneously. But because of this, we have fostered within our country particularly, but I think it's a worldwide phenomena, a very polarized atmosphere where the extremes can feed upon each other and people can easily fall into different camps that in a pluralistic, in an open society can be very counterproductive to sharing the gospel. Because the effect that we have on people when we argue for our position or we argue for our issue is one that turns off other people. It's not the aroma of Christ we wish to convey. It's not carried in the spirit of Christ. Instead, it comes off offensive and it drives people away. And that doesn't mean that we can't disagree with people, but it means we need to do so in a godly way, which starts, as Daryl started his uh, panel or lecture, I guess it was your lecture last night, with James 1, be quick to listen and slow to speak. That'd be the way I'd set the table. Pretty good. All right, Uh, fix it. I uh, didn't put in the stuff. No, well, I'll give people pictures. I like to give people pictures. I tell people that the pluralism that we live in is like a Middle Eastern bazaar. It's like a Middle Eastern mall. Trouble is, is that there are a lot of booze in the mall. And everyone has access to all the booze. And all this information pours towards us. And some of the booze in the mall are pretty bizarre. (laughs) And so we are wrestling with the variety of what is going on around us. To which we, and perhaps for some of us, our children and grandchildren have access. And that's troubling in some ways. And we've lost, in my lifetime, the background, the, the cultural background, <clears throat> the cultural, I'm going to say this, base of our society, which was Judeo-Christian values. It wasn't necessarily Christianity. And uh, in losing that, we, we float um, ethically and morally, etc. And we've gone from being the home team which was the case when I was growing up, 
to being the visiting team. Only we're not just the visiting team, we're the visiting team who are the rivals who are booed. But, and here's the trick in this, that's actually not surprising. The Bible told, the Bible said, in fact Jesus said, that's why we have it in the Bible, Jesus said to his disciples the whole second half of his ministry, if you follow my path, you're going to have to bear a cross. Which is his way of saying, if you go my way, the world will push back on you. Do not be surprised. One of the passages we looked at last night was 1 Peter 3, 13 to 18. And in that passage, three times it said, um, you may get slandered for doing the right thing. I call it box law. Every good deed will get punished. And we're not supposed to be surprised. We're also not supposed to fear that that is happening, which I think the church often reacts out of fear. And instead, we are to recognize something that another verse says, which is, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We need the church to believe that. We need the church to understand that God has a situation which we find ourselves in his hands, and we can trust him with it. And that means then we conduct ourselves in a certain way in the world. And the armor that we have, the sub-premise behind all this is, the culture war that we have been fighting for the last four decades and the way in which we have fought it has not been sufficiently biblically rooted and the result is we've done damage to the church and to society as a result by the way we've gone about it. Not so much because our ideas are wrong, although in some cases they are imbalanced, but because our tone has been wrong. And because people are not the enemy. People outside the church are not the enemy. They're actually the goal. Jesus said, go into the world and make disciples. He didn't say, go into the church and make disciples. He didn't say, pass laws and make disciples. He said, go into the world and make disciples. And the armor of Ephesians 6 says our battle is not, 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 that was emphatic, against flesh and blood but against cosmic forces. And so we're in a spiritual battle, and the trick is those spiritual forces are unseen by many people in the world. They don't even recognize they're there. So they're trapped by something they don't even recognize is there. They don't even know they're in trouble. And yet our assignment is to go in and try and help people see that the life that they have apart from God is just a dangerous way to live. And... And to do so, we have to gain their trust. People don't care about the critique that the gospel offers. I didn't say this last night. People don't care about the critique that the gospel offers unless they know you care. And so the tone with which we do what we do is very important. We can say the right thing in the wrong way, and we're wrong. So we have to adjust how we go about approaching the entire public space that we're engaged in. And I just think the church has fallen seriously short in doing that. And in the process, God has been dishonored because he's seen as an angry and vengeful God rather than a gracious God. Well, I can't find my Bible. We usually have a Bible up here. It was up here earlier. It was. What happened? It got raptured. I don't know. It got raptured. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to cover that in Revelation next spring. (laughs) Is it? Yeah, oh, find your there chair. it is. Well, I was going to do it this way instead. Yeah, but, with uh, that spiritual phone. You want to explain why it's a spiritual it's a phone? Spir- if, uh, I was teasing people last night. I said, how many of you have a Bible? And, oh, let's do this. How many of you have a Bible and you have a thing called pages in it? If you have it, hold it up nice and proud. And I will see how much. How many of you have your Bible on your device? Now, hold it up nice and proud. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just happening, Okay. I tell people, I tell people two things. Meet the people who are still carrying Bibles, who are old school, okay, and have a cross-generational moment. And then, those of you who have the Bible on your phone, you don't have a smartphone, you have a spiritual phone. Give your phone credit for having the Bible, okay? (laughs) All right. (laughs) Well, um, uh, I I won't uh, make you sight read, though I'm sure you would have no trouble. But the class, actually, we have about 80 people in this class who are taking Greek right now. That's a frightening thought. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> Dr. David Case, Greek teacher extraordinaire, there right over go. there. Very cool. Um, um, all right, let's, let's go ahead, though, and we will do it in English. Are you suggesting 
that if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal? I'll suggest even more than that. If we do not obey the great commandment, we will not be great in how we engage the world. Really? Are you saying that if we have prophetic powers, if we understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if we have all faith so we can move mountains, but we don't have love, are you suggesting we're not great? Um, The end of the verse ends with the compliment that I am nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Even if I give away every stinking thing I have, if I'm willing to deliver my body up to be burned, but I don't have love, are you suggesting I haven't gained anything? Nothing plus nothing equals nothing. Okay, well, you make a compelling point that I think Paul would agree with. Um, So uh, let's look at some of the questions from last night that I didn't have time to get to. Okay. And uh, I'll put them up here so that everybody can see them. How do you get from theory to practice in active listening? And I need to pause for a moment and say that one of your main points in the uh, a panel discussion especially was that we need to listen to what other people say. You know, I'm, I'm a lawyer. I teach lawyers how to try cases. I'll have 1,200 lawyers come for two and a half days and put up with me talking to them about how to try a case. One of the most important things I teach them in cross-examination, when you're cross-examining a witness on the other side and you need to gut them like a Christmas turkey. Now, wait a minute. (laughs) With love in your heart. (laughs) When you've got to cross-examine someone, one of the most important things you can do, one of the top three things, is listen to what they're saying. Because if you don't listen to what they're saying, you're you're just talking. You, you can't go anywhere. You can't guide the witness. You can't inform another listener if you're not listening to what they're saying. And not just the words, but listen to the heart. Now, that's in a conflict arena of a lawsuit. But if we're in an arena where we're trying to woo someone to Christ, it becomes even more critical. Well, let me, let, me, let me say it this way, and that is, if I can use the person's own words to raise the issues that I want to discuss with them, I have started off in a place where I'm closer to them and engaging them than if I, if I use my own agenda. All right, so how do you get from theory to practice in active listening? <laughs> you listen, but you listen with an awareness that what is driving the person is something you can't see unless you ask about it. So all conversations have three elements to them. I have the technical word triphonics deal with this. It's like quadraphonic sound. You know, speakers coming from four sounds. It's three elements that are going on in any conversation. It's the topic that you're talking about. And that's where people get stuck. They think they're talking about the topic. There's actually other stuff going on. There's the lens and the emotions attached to that lens that they see and hear with, which means they'll see certain things and they won't see certain things. Lens is easy to describe. All I have to do is go CNN and Fox, and you get it. They're looking at the same phenomena. You listen to what they say about that phenomena, you wonder if they live on the same planet. So, so that's the second one. And the third one is the way my identity is tied to what it is that I'm talking about. In reality, in any important conversation, it's not the topic that you're talking about that you're talking about. It's actually the other two things. The lenses that you're each seeing it with, And those will be different lenses producing different things in people. And then the way in which your identity is tied to that. And so what's important is I need to understand what's going on underneath the surface of the topic in order to really have a meaningful conversation, which means I need to be asking questions. I need to let them speak to what it is that they care about. I want to hear their whys and wherefores. I call it getting a spiritual GPS reading on where the person is coming from. You put your doctrinal meter on mute... Okay, you're not going to do away with it anyway. You're going to recognize. But your response in listening, I said there are two kinds of listeners. There's the person who's the rebutter and there's the person who's the listener. The rebutter is forming his response as he hears what's wrong, what he thinks is wrong from the person talking to him. 
the listener is thinking about what question can I ask to understand why that person believes that and where, where they're coming from and why. I want to understand the whys and the wherefores, the individual whys and wherefores the person has as I, interga- as I engage with them because I might have an impression about why they think what they think that may or may not match who they are. And the moment I attribute to them a motive that is not theirs and accuse them of it, I'm guilty of a sin. That's slander. So listening not only helps you in the conversation and advances the conversation, it also prevents you from making certain mistakes relationally in the conversation that you have. Everything goes back to a U2 song (laughs) or a Bob Dylan song. (laughs) U2 lyric. I thought I heard the captain's voice. I would suggest this is God. But it's hard to listen while you preach. And you see, the, the point of this song is you've you got to stop and you've got to listen and you've got to pay attention and not spend all of your time just putting your position and out there. And here's what you're listening for. This is the most important thing I'm probably going to say. Because generally speaking, when we're engaging with someone who is different than us, we're thinking about how to critique what it is that they're saying to us. That's not what I'm listening for. I'm listening for values or things that they espouse that I can connect to that can take me to a discussion about the gospel where they may share a value that I have but they apply it differently than I do but I can say you know what I share your concern in this area but let's talk about how that concern works that's exactly what Paul did in Acts 17 Paul roamed around Athens he saw all the idols And the text says his spirit was provoked as he saw the idol. So we know how he reacted to the presence of idolatry in his midst. Okay? Um, Your spirit being provoked can be translated in, out of the Greek, into the English, into his blood pressure changed. Okay? His blood pressure changed. He was not happy. If you want to know how unhappy he was about idolatry, just read the end of Romans 1. Okay? He was not a happy man to see all those idols. But when he addressed people who were committed to idolatry, He opened up by saying, I can see that you're very religious in every way. Now, I'm a child of the 60s. When I read that verse, my initial reaction is, Paul, what are you smoking? (laughs) And the point is, what he's saying is, I see that you are spiritual and interested in spiritual things. So let's talk about spiritual things. And he opens the door and goes through. The next thing that he does is he challenges them, but he challenges them Winsomely, he puts what I call a rock in their shoe. Okay, this is Greg Kunkel says this. Put a rock in their shoe. You know, get a rock in your shoe. It's very irritating. You move it around to where your arch is. If you have an arch in the hopes that it will, you know, your arch is uh, providentially constructed large enough to deal with with the pain of taking a step. And eventually you give up. You take off your shoe and you get the rock out of your shoe. Rock out of the shoe is the idea of putting an idea in someone's head they have to think about. To give them pause about the way they see the world. But you do it gently. And so Paul asks a question. Do you really think the God who created all of this that we see can be contained in a thing like that? And there's silence. And he begins to probe that. And so when you're listening, you're listening for something not to critique but you're listening for something you can connect to. And then out of that connection, you can begin to have the conversation that you need to have. And then there are all kinds of rules about how to have that conversation, things that you do to undercut it, things that you can do to advance it that will make the, the conversation either valuable or a total waste of time, depending on how you handle the space. So um, that's what we talk about. All right, so uh, let's get... Uh, I, I want... To... Boy, I got two things we got to do on this subject, so let's don't lose the, the thread on it. But okay. um, let me start with at home. By the way, uh, as I quote the lyrics, um, Paul, in that defense of Acts 17, is quick not only to find a tie-in to them culturally mm-hmm. um, uh, with the various uh, uh, altars and temples that they've got, but he also ties into them intellectually by quoting some of their philosopher, playwright, uh, uh, some of their thinkers. 
uh, in the process in fact, as well. In fact, if you pay careful attention in Acts and you look at the speeches that are given to Jewish audiences where biblical text is being cited all over the place, and you go to that speech where a, text, a biblical text is never cited, a story about Scripture is being told, you will see the difference in the way Paul communicates depending on the audience that he's dealing with and the way he goes in. And when he gets to the key point that he's making in Acts 17, he cites a Greek poet rather than the Bible. Because okay, he wants he wants a shared space of intellectual inquiry as he engages with them, something that they'll recognize. One of the challenges that we have in our world today is 30% of the people today are not darkening the door of a church. Which means the moment you say God says, you've got a problem. Because they have a problem with each word in that statement. They have a problem with God oftentimes, and they have a problem with the idea that God speaks. So the moment you say the Bible says, you have said nothing to them. That's interesting. So you've got to figure out another way to say it. Because you're also in the business of creating categories that many people currently don't have that are the basis for understanding what the gospel message is. So that's a problem. Uh, and my goal is to make sure you don't sleep tonight. Okay? <laughs> well, but that plugs in well to this next question okay, from good. last night that I didn't okay. have time for last night, okay. but we've got time what is the importance of framing the gospel in a culturally sensitive way? Must Bible teaching be modified for cultures? Not the Bible, but the way we teach it. Yes, I mean, I think you have to think about the way in. So, so here's, here's the way. Let me do it backwards. Let me, uh, let me start with the premise of where many people are in our culture who do not go to church. And the premise is this. There isn't a creator God. I am not a, I'm not made in God's image. Uh, there is no accountable relationship to a spiritual being that exists. But there's a flip side to that. That means I'm on my own. So think about that. If you do not believe that God created the world and that there's a relationship with God out there to pursue, then the way of making sense out of your life is you have to define what the sense of your life is. So people construct their own identities. Shouldn't be surprised that's happening. It comes naturally with the vacuum in the space when you take God out of it. So that's what people do. They construct their own identities. And actually, if you listen to the language with which they speak, you will hear it. Because they say, I'm trying to find myself. I like to joke with them. I thought you were right here. You know? (laughs) So... I'm trying to find my... They're looking for location. They're looking to make sense about where they fit in the world. And they're totally suspended in midair for all the natural reasons that that produces. So part of what the Bible does with us is it gives us location. Think location is only about real estate. No, it's about life. And so so the Bible gives a kind of location. And so when people say... I'm struggling to find out who I am or, um, or they're, they're depressed or they feel overwhelmed or whatever it is. That is the world acting on them because there still is the image of God within them that is groping for getting anchored, whether they recognize it or not. I, I tell people another way to think about this space is Satan has people in their clutches, but the people don't believe that Satan exists, so they don't even know they're in danger. So you're like a, you're like a special forces person trying to run in and rescue someone who's been kidnapped. Only the trick is they don't even realize they've been kidnapped, and they don't even know they're in danger. So it makes all the difference in the world how I approach the person who disagrees with me. There's also one other element that I shared last night that's pretty important. And that is, when we engage with someone whose back is turned to God, we are replicating the way God approached us. God approached us when our back was turned to God, and we're never supposed to forget where we came from. Because when we share Christ, we are replicating the very process by which God drew us to himself. And God drew us to himself this way. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever should believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. I like to shorten that sentence into God so loved the world that he gave. And that's how we're supposed to conduct ourselves in the world. We're supposed to be a giving people who serve people, who care for people, 
who show the love of God for people, even love for enemies, which makes us distinctive. And in doing that, we do everything we can to build those relationships, even in the midst of sometimes having to challenge people. But if the gospel is just challenge and we never get to the hope on the other end, that it's the invitation put into, we have not given the good news. We've only given some of it. Because the crucifixion means nothing without the resurrection. And the resurrection is what takes you to new life. And the Spirit of God in the person is what takes you to new life. What doesn't take you to new life is simply passing laws. We saw that experiment in the Old Testament. That was Israel. Israel had the people of God, the law of God, everything about the environment was right to walk with God. And Israel's history was a mess. Why? The end of the Old Testament tells us. That's why we have a new covenant. Because God had to do a work inside of people in order to make the change. So without a change on the inside of people, everything else that you do is a frustrating exercise. (laughs) And we've been experiencing the frustration. So uh, from a practical perspective, um, I I suspect that everybody who's listening to you and and to this uh, dialogue has got someone in their life that they wish knew the gospel, embraced it. There will be many parents who say we've had children who've strayed and, and have rejected religion. Joined the N-O-N-E-S, nuns. Or none even worse, the ex-evangelicals. Yes. Okay. And, okay. and, and you, then we've got um, uh, other people who, who are just sitting there just frustrated over the inability of people to embrace the Christian understanding of the power of the death and resurrection of Christ. So we've got that category of people in here who who are having that reaction. And then we've also got folks who are so frustrated because the world, you know, let me say it this way and you can see if you agree or disagree, but then I want you to come back and address those folks in distress. Um, it is so important that we do what you're saying. We live the way you're talking. We show this love. We, we show a value system that sets us apart from the rest of the world. We don't handle uh, confrontation the way the rest of the world does. We don't handle those things. Uh, we're at a special disadvantage because the media is not going to write up all of the kind and loving things we do. That doesn't make sellable news. They don't get clicks on the internet, which funds the advertising dollars. They don't get clicks for Christians are nice people. What drives the clicks are when we are outspoken people who claim to be speaking on behalf of Christianity come out with vitriol, with anger, with hatred, with bitterness, and, and, and then everybody in the world thinks we're all that way. Uh, I, I was uh, talking to someone recently, and uh, I said, uh, they said, said sometimes, I said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian by faith. I said, oh, are you devout? And I said, well, I mean, my Christian faith is the core of my life. And they said, oh, so you hate all Democrats, you hate all homosexuals, you hate and, he, and just started listing all these things that I'm supposed to hate. And I, I said, that's not the way I understand my faith. I love the Lord and I love the people that he's created in his image. And my desire is to love and serve them while standing for what I understand truth to be. But, but, but all the rest. I mean, we've got an extra burden because the media won't. We've we got to be something apart from what the media shows. Yeah, and we um, can't get away with blaming the media because the media hooks on to stuff that we do that's out there. And so the hard part is there's got to be enough of us who aren't doing that that um, we reverse the impression that exists. I tell people, I, I guess I, a way to summarize what I've been saying the entire hour is I want you to join the Don't Be Surprised Club. The Don't Be Surprised Club is not surprised that the world pushes back. The Don't Be Surprised Club 
understands that what makes Christians distinctive is the way they love, not the people they agree with, but the people they disagree with. The Don't Surprise Club is not surprised that the world pushes back on them through things like the media to talk about. And here's another thing not to be surprised about. If a person never darkens the door of a church and doesn't know very many Christians, their definition of Christianity is going to come from one of two sources, the Christians that they do know and or the way the culture is portraying who Christians are. That's the hurdle that you have. Okay? And that shouldn't surprise you because that's the only sources that they have for understanding what Christianity is. And the only counter to that is us. The only counter to that is us. And that's why when a Christian, we're connected at the hip, unfortunately, in some ways, because when a Christian doesn't live Christianly, but is labeled as a Christian, that reinforces the perception that they have of what's going on. So we've got to be enough different, both individually and corporately, that that segment of our community that identifies with us is not the go-to, which is what has happened. And sometimes fueled by very visible people who otherwise would be perceived as representing what we're about. Uh, and so that is, that is an immense challenge that each one of us bears as we try and represent Christ. All right, quick question, quick answer. Ready? Okay. Yep. Set? Go. When God says, love your enemy, do we have to stop fighting with the enemy? Well, let's talk about the difference between contending for the space that I believe in and what I think is flourishing and I ask how to do it versus thinking that we have to fight. Um, What I tell people is when I go into public space, there are certain things that I believe that, uh, that I think are healthy for healthy human living. I don't care who you are or what your religious faith is. When I walk into public space, we're used to saying it's true because it's in the Bible. Okay? So we say God says and the Bible says and we do that. And I've already told you that doesn't work. So how do you do it? You understand in your head that it's in the Bible because it's true. The reason God said it isn't to give the imprimatur of the Bible on it. The reason God said it is because he's articulating what makes for healthy life. And we have to be enough engaged in our discipleship to be able to make the case for why it would be said this way and why it's healthy for us to contend for the things that we contend with. And we have to do it on terms that someone else can grasp who doesn't share all our faith commitments. That's hard to do, but that's part of what you, you, you need to do when you can do it. And by doing it that way, I go to the table and I say, I don't go to the table as a privileged person. I go to the table as one person who shares space with people who live differently than I do. And I say, I think a great way for all of us to live is to do this. And you make your case for it and you do what you can. You understand you're in the world. You're in the don't be surprised club. Okay? You're in the world. You sometimes might lose that argument in public space. And then the trick becomes, how do you lose well? And one other thing the church has struggled with is we don't know how to lose well. But how do you make the pivot Uh from just teaching a morality or, or sharing a morality to sharing the lordship of Jesus? Well, I think you do that by remembering that the lordship of Jesus is something that the Lord controls and not you. And then what I mean by that is, is that there's a wonderful passage in 2 Timothy that, that says, you live faithfully in front of people, and then perhaps God will grant them repentance, okay, and they will escape the trap of the devil. There's something that God's got to do in the heart that you have absolutely no control of. But you still have the responsibility of Romans, how do they hear if nobody speaks? So you speak into the space and you make the case, but you understand that one of the, one of the frustrating beauties of what God has done with us is he allows us to rebel. The reminder is, this is the key to hold on to, the reminder is is that everyone is accountable for God for the decisions, the moral decisions that they make, whether they recognize it or not. Okay? So I have to live with a deep belief that the accountability to God is real even when that accounting may come later versus now. All right, so in this vein, we've got three minutes. Okay. Talk to people who are saying, this isn't just the public space, 
this is my home space. This is my children's this is my space. Children's space. Or yeah. my, my, you know, sibling space or right. my parents' space. Right. Talk to them. Again, you have to model something in which you, in which the, the fear of what the church often reacts out, out of doesn't become so dominant around your kids that there isn't a way for you to walk alongside them while they're encountering what's in the world and help them to come to grips with it. Our response generally has been to try and shelter our kids from the world. One of the realities is, let me get my phone out. One of the realities is, you cannot shield your kids forever from what is going on in this. They have to make decisions about it. You have to teach them how to make decisions about it. They will be out in the world one day, encountering people who are part of the bazaar. And some of the booze will be pretty bizarre. And you're going to have to equip them to do that. So when things are taught in the elementary school that are uncomfortable from a Christian point of view, which will happen, okay, um, every good deed will get punished and every bad deed will be exalted. When you do that, you've got to help your kids understand. What you're actually helping your kids understand is the nature of sin in our world. You can't protect them from it. So you better equip them for it. What about when the kids grow up, though? They grow up in the church. They go off. They leave the church and decide it was all a bunch of hooey. You've spoken into their lives for 20 years. What do you do at that point? Do you quit speaking? Do you listen? Do you just live? Do you look for those golden moments where you might be able to... Do you show them... Extra love? Do you, you show them extra love? Okay. You show them extra love because they're expecting you to walk away from them. And you show them extra love. You stay available. You listen to the, what their struggles are. You try and get them, if you can, reoriented. But the, there's a wonderful book about the dechurching of America that's just come out. They've studied a variety of groups. The hardest group to deal with is what are called the exvangelicals. Because they've been burned by the church. And that's why they don't want to have anything to do with the church. That group is, that statistically, by, by the responses, is the hardest group in the world to reach. There are all kinds of other groups that are de-churched or that are uh, interested in what the church does. And what the, what, the stat, what the data shows, this is a book everyone ought to read. Um, it shows is. If people can walk into what they feel is an authentic community, they are interested in being connected with what it is the church represents. Think about that. They are not thinking intellectually about what we believe. They are thinking relationally about how we interact with one another. Ladies and gentlemen, the great commandment is a great commandment for a reason. And that is, it's at the top of the list of what God is asking of us in the world. To love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And to do it, and, to, and what makes it really distinctive, what makes Christianity distinctive from everything else, is that the Lord said, when you love, you are loving your enemies, not just those who love you. Because that's what makes the difference. If you love the way the sinner loves, then what's the big deal in that? If we occupy public space the way all other special interest groups do, what's the big deal in that? I've got a lot of special interest groups I can choose from. So let's make sure we live and love in such a way that we image God, because we're made in His image to image God, and honor Him, and people will see our love and our care so that when we share God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, it will not just be words. They will have seen it demonstrated in the way in which we've interacted with them. Amen. Would you join me in thanking Dr. Darrell Bach? That's actually a wonderful segue. Uh, I was at early service this morning. If you've not heard Pastor Jarrett's sermon yet, you do want to check it out. He will be quoting and he will be talking about these very same things. It meshes uh, incredibly well. 
Um, uh, next week, we start with Genesis. I urge you to come. I urge you to invite your friends. I promise you it will be Genesis as you've never heard it. Uh, uh, and yet Genesis as, it, as you've always heard it. And, and we're not changing the text, but we're going to open it up in some wonderful ways, uh, starting by looking at the Egyptian wisdom from painted on the tomb and temple of Ramesses, uh, the, the adopted father of sorts of Moses and understanding where Moses was coming from as he gets enlightened by God on Sinai. So I urge you to be here then. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Dr. Adam Wright, great friend of mine, president of DBU, Dallas Baptist, is sitting right over here. So if you know uh, someone close to you who needs a full ride to Dallas Baptist, <laughs> you want to go talk. You want to go talk to Doctor Adam Wright right there. I'm sure he's got presidential scholarships oozing from every pore. Uh, no, uh, uh, it's an honor to have all of you here, uh, whether high or low, whether uh, uh, I know you or don't know you. Thank you for gracing us with your presence today. Let me bless you in the name of Jesus, and we'll depart. Father, I pray that all of us who hear this message will be challenged to our core the walk of following our Lord at all expense to love and in demonstrable ways those people who need your love i.e. everyone we pray this in the name of Jesus Amen, Amen.